Let me introduce myself. My name is Brandon Reddick, and I am the lead pastor here at the Bridge Church, where we exist to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context. For all of our new friends that are with us here today, thank you so much for being with us on this Sunday morning. We realize that there are a multiplicity of churches that you could have gone and um, worship with on this morning, but you came to see about us, and we say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We consider it a privilege and an honor to have each and every one of you with us this morning. As Julie said earlier in the service, it would do our hearts uh, great, bring great uh, joy to our hearts if you would complete the bridge card that you re- received upon walking in. That way we just know your name, you were here, it's one way for us to connect, and we want to be able to say thank you for being here um, on this morning. If there's any information that you would like to receive from the Bridge Church, whether um, it's learning more about us, becoming baptized, becoming a Christian, uh, serving or giving here at the Bridge Church, you can turn it on the back of the Bridge car, complete that, uh, and then we'll get uh, with you here um, in the early part of the week. Um, I want to solicit your prayers. I, I guess, uh, first of all, I, I will apologize to um, our, our new friends that we have with us and our regularly attending members. I walked in and I smelled the smell again this week. And, and so we want you to be in prayer for that. We have had it checked out and, and looked at, and we received a quote to fix it for $15,000 um, this week. So we want to be in prayer for uh, the landlord, and I want you to know that we are working on it, um, and it's not something that we take lightly. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning for our text. We only, actually, it's not that bad. It's only about 65 verses <laughs> of scripture that uh, we brought. So I hope you brought you a brown bag <laughs> snack because you know me, I preach verse by verse, line by line, thought by thought. And so we've got a lot to cover. Uh, what y'all laughing for? I'm serious. Shoot. Well, I am. Connie and I woke up late, so we haven't talked to each other, so we're just going to talk to each other right now before this sermon. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, Acts chapter 10 is where we are. Acts chapter 10 is where we are. So we're going through this study of the book of Acts, which we've called Multiply. One of the verses that you need to commit to memory because it's a charge to all of us and it's crucial to understanding the structure and the flow of the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, And the other parts of the earth. Many commentators, as I've told you before, have said that you can outline the structure of the book of Acts based on Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Because the first part of the story, the setting is in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, all the way up to about Acts chapter 7, we see uh, most of the action taking uh, place in Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to uh, Philip uh, and and an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, And so now the gospel is going from Jerusalem, the home of the Jews, now to Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds, and they had this hostility 
this hostile relationship between themselves and the Jews. And so in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, we see the gospel now going from Jerusalem into Samaria. And so now it's spreading. Do we have the map, Auburn? And then from there, yeah, look at that. I got this from Josh. I never can let Josh outdo me. Ha! So Josh, this is what I did. I went and got me a handy dandy. Ha! So, if you can see it, act like you can, somewhere on this map is Jerusalem. At the bottom. That's Jerusalem. And so that's where the gospel or this new church begins, right there in Jerusalem. Now, this, this region here, it's about a square region, is all Judea. Jerusalem is a part of Judea, and so now he sends, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, Samaria, this area. And then guess what? Then also to the uttermost parts of the earth. Likely that he would have been talking about the rest of Rome. All right? Now, so we've seen the gospel start here in Jerusalem, and then it kind of traveled south, then went back up north. Uh, last week, we were here at Lydda and Joppa. And so now today, as we go to Acts chapter 10, we're going to be northwest of Jerusalem here in Caesarea. Caesarea. So turn your Bibles. Oh, I felt so special. I really did. Acts chapter 10 is where we are. Because we have so much to cover, I'm going to pick and choose verses for us to read together. So I'll tell you more of, I'll kind of tell you the story, and then we'll hop into uh, the sermon. Acts chapter 10, it begins with Caesarea, and we're introduced to a man by the name of Cornelius. He, he, he is a centurion um, of the Italian cohort. He's a good religious man. He prays well. And, and, and so he is what's called a God-fearer. And I'll come back and tell you more about that here in a little bit. And, and, and to Cornelius, this God-fearing man, an angel comes to Cornelius and he says, Cornelius, your, your sacrifices have gone up as a memorial before God. In other words, they are pleasing to God. I want you, Cornelius, this angel comes down, speaks to Cornelius, and he says, Cornelius, I want you to send some men down to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. Peter is living, he's staying temporarily in Joppa with a man by the name of Simon the Tanner. And, and, and he says, I want you to send for him and then bring him back to Caesarea. Peter is hanging out in, in Joppa, and so then uh, at, at, at one of his regular prayer times, the sixth hour, uh, he went up to pray. The sixth, so the, the Jewish day started at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would have been noon. You start at 6 and then count whatever hour they tell you. So at noontime, it's time to pray. And so at Simon's house, Simon, Simon uh, the Tanner now, Simon Peter, he would have gone on top of the roof to pray. He's on top of the roof praying, and then the text says he falls into this trance. And this trance, it's, it's a vision. And what Peter sees in this vision is he, he, he sees from heaven a sheet drop down. 
this sheet drops down, and within or on this sheet are all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And while Peter is in this trance, a voice from heaven comes, and it says to Peter, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. It was noontime, so it was lunchtime. Just one praying time, it was lunchtime too. And so now Peter says to this voice from heaven, he says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. This voice from heaven says to Peter, what God has made clean, you don't get to call common. And the text says that this happened three times and then it was taken back up into heaven. Or for our sheet, it's going to go on my head. <laughs> so Peter, he's like, man, what just happened? I just saw this vision, and he's trying to figure out what it is that happened. While Peter is up here pondering the vision, the men from Caesarea that Cornelius sent are downstairs. A voice from heaven once again says, Peter, there's some men looking for you. It's okay. Go and talk to them. And they say, we come from Cornelius. He's a good man, a God-fearing man, a devout, a devout man, a righteous man. And he wants you to come and tell him what thus said the Lord. Both men stay a couple of days there with Simon at Simon the Tanner's house. Then they leave and they go back to Caesarea. Now, Peter, Cornelius has gathered some close friends and some close family members to hear a message from Peter. Because Cornelius, later we'll find in Acts chapter 11, that Cornelius believed that God had a word for them that would transform his life. And so he gathered friends and family together to hear the word. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Here's what Peter says. He says to all the ones gathered in the house of Cornelius. Now, I've got to tell you this part. Caesarea was full of Gentiles. Peter is a Jew. You're supposed to go, ooh, exactly. Jews and Gentiles, they don't get, get along. Jews say, y'all unclean. We, we, we don't fool with y'all. And Gentiles are like, we don't like y'all either. And so there's this hostile relationship. And here's what Peter says to these Gentiles gathered together in the home of Cornelius in Caesarea. Verse 28 of chapter 10. Peter says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God, I'm, I told you, that's always Two shouting words right there. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so Peter says, Cornelius, what you call me up here for? Cornelius says, I had a vision too that you were supposed to come and you were supposed to speak to us. Now here's a part of the text we can read together. Acts chapter 10, beginning verse 34. This is a crucial part of the text. Acts chapter 10 beginning with verse 34. Here's what it says. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand 
that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Obviously, the Holy Spirit didn't get an order of service. Because in the middle of the sermon, the Holy Spirit takes over. This is for free. The Holy Spirit runs this service. And he has the right to take this plan of service and says, I got a different plan. We'll recycle this. <laughs> Verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's, let's look at a few things from the scripture. And then we'll be on our merry way. I want to talk to you today from, from this thought. The gospel brings down walls. The gospel brings down walls. For this to happen, there must first be the preparation for the gospel. This is section chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. I want us to look together at the preparation for the gospel. Look, look what we see here in this first section. In this first couple of verses, we see fully the depravity of man. How, how fallen man is. What are you talking about, Brandon? Track with me. The story opens, remember, by introducing us to a man by the name of Cornelius. 
Here's what the text tells us about Cornelius. One, he's a good, hardworking man. He's got a reputable job. How do we know that? He's a centurion. Centurion. Now, this is Roman military language. The, the, the Roman military, their biggest division was a legion of men. This legion uh, included 6,000 men. And then that legion was further subdivided by cohorts. The cohort included 600 men. That cohort was further subdivided by 100 men sent, century, which we get the word centurion, which means that he was a non-commissioned officer over about 100 men. He's got an honest job. But not only that, it says not only was he, that he'd have an honest career, but he also was devout. He was pious. Not only was, well, do we learn that he was devout, but he was also a man who feared the Lord or a God-fearer. What is a God-fearer? A God-fearer was a Gentile who observed Jewish laws, but yet they were not fully converted to Judaism. In other words, the big thing was they had not been circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his chosen people, Israel. And so if anyone wants to be a, 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 be a part of Judaism as a religion, they had to be uh, circumcised. But the God is like, we'll do all this stuff, but you ain't cutting on me. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron. But this, not only was it devout, not only was he a God-fearer, but he was also very generous financially. He showed compassion. He was charitable. He gave to the poor. But then it didn't stop there. Not only was he devout, not only was he a God-fearer, not only was he a hard-working man, not only was he financially generous, but he was a praying man. He was a prayer warrior. Not only was Cornelius a hard-working man, devout, feared the Lord, generous in, in praying, but the text says that he was the priest of his home because all of his household feared the Lord. Now, this is the kind of man, fathers, that you wanted your daughter to marry. This, this is the man you want on your elder team, on your deacon board. This, this is the man who you say, you can actually run the finances of the church. He was a good man. He was religious. But was as still as far from God as the worst sinner. Religious, but still not saved. Despite how good this man is, he's still far from God. He's still in need of a Savior. How do I know that? Because God has to send Peter 
to come and proclaim the gospel to him. This text shows us clearly that good works and being a good person can't make you right with God. This year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation of the church that was unleashed by God in 1517 by none other than Martin Luther when he nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. It was Martin Luther's desire to reform the practices and the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. And so this year, as we celebrate that 500th anniversary, one of the things I've been doing is I've, uh, for the second time in as many weeks, I'm reading through the biography of Martin Luther called Here I Stand. And so I think it'd be good right time to illustrate this point by sharing with you some of the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, he was a good dude. But what, what scared him to death was the sight of Christ as judge. At the time, the church taught that the only recourse to escape hell and damnation was to lay hold of everything that the church had to offer. Sacraments, pilgrimages, indulgences, the intercession of the saints. But then there was something that a man could really do. The surest way to get to heaven, they said, was to become a monk. And so that's what Martin Luther did because this consumed his mind. Seeing Christ standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And he was never sure that Christ would say, enter into my rest. But he thought he would probably hear Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. In other words, he didn't want to hear Jesus tell him to go to hell. And so Luther says, I'll become a monk to save my soul. At the time, the church saw monasticism as like a second baptism. Purified you and cleaned you. And so he said, I'll become a monk. Because this is the surest way to make me right with God. The, 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 the attractiveness of monasticism was there you could work your way to being right with God. Because there was chastity, poverty, obedience, fasting, vigils. And because of this works-based religion, for Luther, Lent was more comforting than Easter. Luther would say to himself on one of his good days, Josh, he'd say, I've done nothing wrong today. And then as as soon as he would say that, doubt would creep in his mind. And he would ask himself, I fasted, but have I fasted enough? I'm poor, but am I poor enough? I've given but have I given enough? He said, he says, you know what? I know, I know what will work. Confession. I'll confess. I confess my sins. The, 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 I'll confess all my sins and they will be forgiven. 
The problem, though, for Luther was, even when he confessed his sins, he would have to say to himself, I've got a problem. Because the only way confession works is if I can actually recognize and remember my sins. And if I can't recognize and remember my sins, then I can't confess my sins. And if I can't confess my sins, then I can't be forgiven. So he'd have to ask himself, did I confess everything? He's trying to check off the boxes to be right with God. He says, I've been good. But have I been good enough? Out of everything he tried, he could never get this inner sense of tranquility, this inner sense of peace that he was right with God. Luther realized that, that on his own he could never satisfy God enough at one point. He needed something or someone outside of himself to save him from himself. Friends like Luther, we can never do enough good to be right with God. We could never fast enough. We can never confess enough. We can never give enough. We can never sacrifice enough. We can't pray enough. We are morally bankrupt before a holy God. The depravity of men, as good as Cornelius was, he was still far from God. Man, this is not going to work. I'm just on sub point A. All right, let's move on then. We see the depravity of man, but watch this. We also see in this text the divine initiative of God. God is the one who makes the first move. God is the one who initiates reconciliation between man and himself. I'm in this text. Look at verse 3. It is God who sends an angel to Cornelius. Even in verse 10 and 11, it is God who gives Peter a vision. Friends, God is always the one who takes the first step towards man. I didn't make this up. This is from the very beginning of time. God created man in his image, told him, look, you, you can have anything you want in this garden, but of this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't you eat from it. Adam and Eve, Eve started listening to snake talk, and, so, and she gives this forbidden fruit from this tree to her husband. They eat from this tree. They disobey God's word. And the first thing they do after they realize that they've sinned, their eyes are open, is they run and hide. And friends, that is the pattern coming to every man when it comes to their God, their creator. They will always run and hide from their God, from their creator first. But God, True to himself, he comes and he pursues Adam and Eve. The same Adam and Eve that just disobeyed him. The same Adam and Eve that says we want to have it our way. The same Adam and Eve that says we want to do our will, not your will. That same Adam and Eve, God goes and pursues him. How do I know that? Because he cries out, Adam, where are you? 
Ooh, I'm so happy this morning because the same God that went looking for Adam is the same God that came pursuing Brandon D. Reddick Sr. And the same God that pursued Adam and Brandon is the same God that's pursuing you. How do I know he's pursuing you? Because you in this house on this day hearing this message about the God that pursues all men. God is always the one who takes the first step. All right, let me give you a quick observation about Cornelius. Remember, I told you he is a Gentile. Salvation was of the Jews initially. It, 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 came to, it was of the Jews, and it came to the Jews first. And this is what Paul says to us about Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Gentiles were strangers to the covenant of promise. Gentiles had no hope. Gentiles were without God in the world. Gentiles were far off. So then if that is their lot in life, the question is, how would they ever hear the gospel? Friends, every person that God wants to be saved will be saved through the proclamation of the gospel. Every person that God wants to be saved will be saved. Everyone's always wondering about, what about the people who haven't heard about Jesus, haven't heard about the gospel? Not one who wants to be saved or, 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 or has responded to the limited light that they, uh, that's been given to them will go without hearing the gospel. Our job, friends, is to just be faithful witnesses. That's what Peter is here. So we see the depravity of man, we see the divine initiative of God, but then not only that, we see the declaration by God. Follow me. In verses 9 through 16, Peter sees this vision from heaven, and he sees all these uh, animals and birds and reptiles. Peter says, I'm not going to eat that. Uh, there are unclean animals on this menu. I don't want that. Um, these, and, and so the question is, where did all this unclean food and stuff come from? Here's, here's what Peter understood. By eating unclean food, the person became unclean under Jewish law. The question then, and you can check this out in Leviticus 11, because I know how much y'all love reading through Leviticus. Ha! What's so funny? It's in the Bible. I've never heard myself preach before, Aaron. Thank you. Lord, I needed that. The question, though, is why would these dietary laws put in place? These dietary laws were put in place by God, primarily to separate Jews from Gentiles. The goal originally was holiness, set-apartness. By not allowing Jewish people to eat certain foods, God was preventing the Jews from feasting with Gentiles, from having table fellowship with Gentiles. God, God was making sure that Jews didn't go out to dinner with Gentiles. What God was doing initially was he was trying to prevent this intermingling 
Because he knew that the pull of God knew that the pull of the world will always be greater. And so they now was began to serve idols. And so God was really doing this for their good. So then therefore, these laws, these dietary laws had social implications. Jews and Gentiles and intermingle. Now, the text says, as soon as Peter says, I've never eaten anything common or clean, this voice from heaven says, don't you call anything common that God has made clean. In other words, what we learn here is that God is saying that these dietary laws are no longer in effect. I've declared all food clean. Therefore, the implication of that is now Jew and Gentile can have table fellowship with one another. We're talking about the preparation of the gospel. The man has to be prepared, Cornelius. In order for a man to really receive the gospel, God has to pursue him. And now God has declared all food clean. And so now they can have intimate fellowship with all people. In other words, God has to prepare the heart of Peter, a Jew, to know that now you can go and have a relationship with Gentiles. In other words, you can now develop cross-cultural relationships because it's going to be crucial to the advancement of the gospel. Friends, here's an implication for you. Racial reconciliation cannot happen from a distance. One of the greatest hindrances. Y'all, Miss Veronica don't ever clap. If she clap, y'all ought to clap. Shoot. (laughs) One of the greatest hindrances to racial unity in the body of Christ is our unwillingness to engage one another socially. We must be willing to develop deep relationships with people of all ethnicities. We, we, church, must be willing to go into the neighborhoods, the homes of people that don't look like us, that don't talk like us, that don't vote like us, and the church said, Reconciliation happens when lives are shared, when stories are shared. Friends, the only way that I can appreciate you and you can appreciate me is if you know me. You cannot appreciate what you don't know. What you don't know, all you can do is judge and criticize. I got to get out of here. The preparation of the gospel But in this text, not only do we see the preparation of the gospel, we also see the power of the gospel. Verses 34 through 48, which is what we read together. In the power of the gospel, look at the proclamation by Peter. Peter goes to Caesarea, and verse 34 says, he opened his mouth. Y'all, whenever it says that about Peter, I get real, real nervous. (laughs) Peter, you never know what was going to come out of Peter's mouth, but this time, he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, 
Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Friends, this was the point of the prior vision. To get Peter to understand that God is not impartial when it comes to race. Or that God is impartial when it comes to race. Friends, God is not biased when it comes to race. God shows no favoritism. God does not discriminate. What we see here is the doors opening wide for people to people from every nation to hear the gospel and respond by faith. This text is proof that God has a multi-ethnic heart. It didn't start in Acts, it started in Genesis. Okay, you're looking but you're not listening, let me help you. God calls this man Abram. And he says to Abram, get up, go to a land I'm going to show you. I ain't going to tell you right now, but if you go, just go, you'll be blessed. I'm going to give you land. I'll give you people. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. And through you, here it is, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. You missed it. Through one man who would later create a people called Israel, all, everybody say all, all of the families of the earth. He didn't just say Jewish families will be blessed. In Genesis chapter 12, God is already showing that he has a heart for all people. All races, all ethnicities, all cultures, all of the families will be blessed. The problem with Israel, knowing that they were elect, is that they thought they were just so special and one of a kind and that salvation would only come to them. They probably got bogged down about arguments and debates about who is the elect. That is never the point of election in the Bible. It's never to say who, but why. The point of their election was to be light to the Gentiles, to testify about the holiness, the goodness of the one true God. And y'all come join our team now. Come serve this one true and living God. So Peter uses this divinely orchestrated opportunity to evangelize, to proclaim the good news. He points out to his hearers what God has done through Jesus. Peter says that Christ was put to death. That's how horrific sin is to a holy God. Oh, but God raised him on the third day. I know we're not up to Easter yet. I know we got another month before Easter. But can I give you all a little mini sermon for Easter? How do we know that the resurrection actually happened? Here's what Peter says. Here's the evidence. Verse 41, he says, number one, Christ appeared to the apostles. There were eyewitnesses. If there's one thing that'll kill you, if you ever get put on trial for any crime, is an eyewitness. There were eyewitnesses. They say, we saw him. By the way, it this, we didn't just see some phantom spirit. 
This, this was Jesus in body and spirit. Why do we say that? Verse 41 says, he ate and drank. Spirits don't eat and drink. Third, the third uh, piece of evidence, he spoke. Because he said, I want y'all now to go and testify to all people that I that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. That's the evidence of the resurrection, friends. He rose. So we see the proclamation. But then we also see, the, not only do we see the proclamation of the gospel, we also see the promise of the gospel. Verse, 30, verse 43 says, To him, Jesus, All the prophets bear witness, here's the promise, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the promise of the gospel church. Look at this promise. The promise is both inclusive and exclusive. What do you mean, Brandon? It's inclusive that it includes everyone. Without distinction of race, it includes both Jew and Gentile. The promise is to everyone. It's inclusive, but not only is it inclusive, it's also exclusive because it's to everyone, here it is, who believes. The person that wants to be forgiven of their sins must believe in Jesus Christ. The only requirement to be right with God, to be reconciled with God, to have peace with God is faith. Trusting in Jesus Christ. I told you, I told you earlier, Luther, Martin Luther, he struggled with this because everything he was trying his hardest to work himself to God. But he never had any, he never had inner peace. At one point in life, Luther started reading and studying the book of Romans. And he came across this phrase in Romans, the justice of God. Now, this phrase, the justice of God, it caused him to be really begin to hate God because he took that phrase to mean that it's the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. So all he could see when he read the phrase, the justice of God, was punishment. But Luther didn't give up. He kept pondering the meaning of this phrase, the justice of God. And then finally, one day, he saw the connection between the justice of God and and the phrase in Romans that says, the just shall live by faith. And this is Luther's words. He says, then I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sure mercy, God justifies us by faith. And he says, thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn. And to have gone through open doors into paradise. This is what Luther says to all people. If you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. It wasn't until he realized that the only way for man to be right with his creator is to live by faith in the person and work 
of Jesus Christ. And friends, there is no other way. So Peter, he's preaching, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit takes over, I told you earlier. And now we have clearest evidence that now these people have been transformed, that they've been converted, that they've been saved. What's the proof then in our text? First, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 44 says that while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. This was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to indwell them. The Holy Spirit, friends, is the agent of regeneration. The Holy Spirit is what brings new life to dead souls. No Holy Spirit, no conversion. The Holy Spirit is what gives life. And by being baptized by the Holy Spirit, these Gentiles are now placed into the church. The church is no longer uniquely Jewish. It is now both Jew and Gentile. Friends, the church is a multi-ethnic international body of people. I'm not making this up. I don't have an agenda here because I've planted a multi-ethnic church. This is straight from the heart of God, the word of God, and the spirit of God. Not only do they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but then they receive baptism by water. I ain't going to argue with y'all right now, but I just want to point out something to you. The spirit came before the water. You deal with that. Peter instructed these new believers to be baptized by water, which is the outward sign of an inward change of the heart. It's the first act of obedience. Not the first act of salvation. It's the first act of obedience following salvation. Let's get out of here. Last, last one. Not only do we see the preparation of the gospel, not only do we see the presentation of the gospel, but then we also now see the people of the gospel, which is what I said earlier. It's a multi-ethnic, international group of people. Peter, Peter leaves Caesarea, goes back to the church at Jerusalem, and as soon as he gets to the church of Jerusalem, he's met with some criticism. There, there's some critics. Now, in this church in Jerusalem, they say to Peter, Peter, we heard what you've been doing. You've been fraternizing with them Gentiles. Went into the house, and you ate their food, that unclean food, like liver. Ill. Okay, maybe not liver, but some bird that they weren't supposed to eat <laughs> that had a liver. <laughs> In the name of Jesus, that food is disgusting. <laughs> I, I heard a cloud. There we go. <laughs> they said, Peter, we heard about you. You went and ate. We are circumcised people, and you went and ate with them uncircumcised people. 
Peter, explain yourself. Friends, whenever you start trying to pursue racial reconciliation, there probably will be some criticism. Y'all doing over there with that black preacher. He loses his mind at the end of the sermon and start hooping. <laughs> Going over there with all that emotionalism. Because again, you can't appreciate what you don't know. So when, when you see Connie up here moving and stuff while she's singing and Brandon being all excited and stuff, all that emotionalism, that ain't God. There will be criticism. And so Peter says he faces his critics. And so there's the criticism, and then there's the counter-argument by Peter. And essentially what, 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 what Peter argues is he says, it wasn't me, it was God. I got ahead of myself. Let me tell you the problem with his critics. The problem with the critics was Peter was circumcised, and he had a special diet because he was a Jew. And then there was these Gentiles who were uncircumcised and just ate whatever they wanted to. And so now, Jew, you've been, I mean, Peter, you've been fraternizing with these Gentiles. And so now you unclean. And Peter, the reason we really mad at you is because you didn't make these Gentiles, when they talk about they wanted to be saved and be right with God, you didn't make the Gentiles become Jews. Too fast. Y'all got caught up in me moving back and forth. Y'all don't know I can move that fast. The problem for the critics was that Peter did not make the Gentiles assimilate and acculturate into Jewish culture. That's why they were really mad at him. Because he says, if these Gentiles, if, if these, the critics said, if these Gentiles really want to be right with God, they need to become like us. They need to become circumcised. And they need to eat like us. They need to worship like us. Because you know we do it the right way. Oh, I'm on your row right now. Why does segregation linger in the American church? Because everybody wants their way. A lot of times we have churches, and I'm not dogging any church. I love uh, homogeneous churches, meaning they're mostly of one ethnicity. But a lot of times we hear churches say, we, we, we want to be multicultural, we want to be multiracial, multiethnic. And so we want people of, of all colors and races in, to come and be a part of our church. But what that really means is you can come as long as you come and do worship like we do it. Do Gentile thing. You, you got to sing music like we sing. The preacher got to preach like we preach. That's why segregation continues. And that's why what, what Martin Luther King said that the, the, the most segregated hour in America is the 11 o'clock hour, 9.30. <laughs> because there's not, there's assimilation and never accommodation. How do we accommodate? That means that it's going to confuse you all the time, but we're going to sing contemporary and gospel music. How do we accommodate? 
You're going to have a black man preaching to you sometime, and then this white dude going to come up, and he's going to preach too. And one day we're going to get a Hispanic brother to come up here and preach. And one day, miraculously, we're going to have an Asian brother come up here and preach. I see it in the future. It's turning around for the bridge. <laughs> but there's always this thing. You got to be like us. Not just in the church, but everywhere. You got to talk like us. Because we do it the right way. You got to think like us because we think the right way. Why is racial reconciliation so challenging today? It's because we want all the Gentiles to become like us. Ooh, I'm enjoying this. I got one more sermon to preach today, though. I can't give y'all all of it because then y'all be like, I went to this service and he said the same thing. <laughs> Peter argues in his counter argument. He says, it wasn't me that did this. This was all God. I was just an obedient vessel. And then this is what Peter puts before his critics in chapter 11, verse 17. He says, if God gave them the same gift that he gave us, the Holy Spirit, when we first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? God gave the Gentiles the same gift of the Holy Spirit that he gave the Jews. In other words, Jew and Gentile are now equal in Christ. There is no distinction. Neither is better than the other. But look what happens here. For the gospel to go to the Gentiles, Peter's heart had to be changed. And notice what happens to Peter. When he refers to the Gentiles, he doesn't refer to them based on external criteria. He doesn't refer to them based on what they look like physically. He refers to them in, in, in chapter 11, verse 17, based on who they are spiritually. It's in text. Because he says, if God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we first believed, he's referring to the, the Holy Spirit. Friends, if racial reconciliation is to happen, we must start to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Peter was not colorblind. Let me help you, because you, when you say it, you say it from a good heart. God doesn't want you to be colorblind. He wants you to see color. Because it's a living picture of his creativity and his greatness. And in every race, there's a story which God has written. So you don't have to be colorblind. Peter was not colorblind. He knew they were Gentiles. He knew that they didn't look like him. But that's not what he saw primarily. He looked at them through his spiritual lenses. Not the physical lenses. The way to overcome a racist heart, even in the church, because we've gotten it wrong before. 
preachers, pastors back in the day talked about the curse of Ham and they said, this is what justifies slavery. We get it wrong even in the church sometimes. What changed Peter's heart was the gospel. And he now saw his brother and sister, not as black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Mexican, uh, whatever. He saw their identity in Christ. And he said, this is now our brother and our sister. And I be doggone if I'm going to be the one that's going to stand in the way of what God is trying to do. Are you standing in the way of what God is trying to do in this city? What changed Peter's heart was the gospel. Church, the gospel brings down walls of separation. The gospel brings down walls of privilege. The gospel brings down walls of racism. The gospel brings down walls of elitism. The gospel brings down walls of oppression. The gospel brings down walls of prejudice. We must be people of the gospel. So then the conclusion here. The text says, when Peter tells them that it was nobody but God who was doing this thing, and they responded to the gospel the same way we did by faith, and they received the Holy Spirit, the text says that they were silent. And then, They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. We now have a Jew-Gentile church. Actually, what we have, you hear me say this 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 evening, is what, what Christ has done for us. He's created one new man. He's created an entirely new race of people called the church. Here's the truth of the matter. As hard as we try to fight prejudice in our hearts, stereotypes in our hearts, and I'm guilty of it too, because as soon as, as soon as I said something about Asians in my head, a while ago, a little calculator popped up in my head. Stereotype Asian. You know they're good at math. That's what we do. We think about Mexicans. Some image pops up in our, some stereotype. Blacks. What we've seen on TV, heard on the radio, seen at the movie theaters. Whites. Black people refer white men sometimes or white people as, you know, the man is after us. All of us have some things that we got to work on in our heart. It's an ongoing work. And so here's what I want us to do right now. Is that I want us to corporately confess some racial sin that we have. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and then as they come, I've asked Amanda Sumsel, a white woman, to come and lead us in a confession of sin. Now, there was someone who came to our church. They were visiting our church, 
And they were just talking about kind of how our, what, well, the different ways worship can be handled. And so she was saying that, you know, I just don't like very liturgical churches. I don't like to be told what to say. Friends, the reason we do corporate confessions first and mostly is because that's what's biblical. You go read stuff like in Nehemiah, if you read through the book of Nehemiah, you will see the whole group of people confess sin together. Confession of sin in a corporate body is biblical. But the other reason we need to confess sin corporately as the church that's gathered is because corporately we are guilty of promoting discrimination and segregation in the church. And it only is the church that is uniquely qualified to deal with race issues. Racism is a spiritual problem. So that means if it's a spiritual problem, then the solution has to be spiritual. And so together we're going to corporately confess our sin. Amanda, will you lead us?